As we come to God's word, let us first dedicate our tithes and offerings. So would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, indeed, you are almighty God, creator, maker of heaven and earth. All things come by your mighty hand. But you are also a faithful father, good and gracious, and every good gift you give to us, your dear children. And so, Father, help us to be a people who are grateful. And as an aspect of that gratefulness, be a people who are giving to reflect your image in the way that we love and to serve and to give and to use our resources for the good of our neighbor and ultimately for the glory of your name. Father, would you use our tithes and offerings to strengthen us, your people, to strengthen your church uh, for the ministry of your word to go forth and go out um, to be a blessing to the nations as they, they hear the gospel and respond to the good truth of your word. Father, as we come to your word now, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would cause our ears to hear, our eyes to see in your text, our hearts to be changed, to be molded, our minds to be conformed uh, to your will. Help us receive from you what you have for us in your word today. And this we pray in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, our text this morning will be Genesis chapter 11. So you can follow along in your bulletin. It's labeled Exodus, but it is Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9. And as we come to finish uh, our series in First John, we wanted to let Bill finish that out, and so uh, we're going to spend this week in Genesis, considering what God has for us there. It might be helpful before we read uh, this text to understand its relationship to what comes before it, uh, it's specifically its relationship to chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 10, we get a summary of the nations after the flood narrative, and, and we have Noah and his three sons, and chapter 10 tells us all those who descend from them. And you remember in Genesis chapter 1, God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And after the flood, the same command is repeated to Noah and his sons in chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 10 of Genesis summarizes this, the fulfillment of this command. And it's summarized in verse 32 where it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So then we get to chapter 11. And chapter 11, this tower narrative, actually takes us back in time. What it does is it explains the scattering and the various languages of all these nations that were told to us in chapter 10. It's, it's told to us in retrospect, if you will. And when the author does this, he doesn't see this as contradictory. It is complementary for him. And as we'll see, what it does in ordering it this way, it actually draws our attention forward to chapter 12 and the way that God would call Abram and bring his blessing about for these many nations. 
And so with that, let us read Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of, the, of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right, so we have the whole earth. And it's representative, it's the whole earth, meaning the entirety of the people. And they have this united language. They, 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 they have one language, and they come to this plain of Shinar, and they settle there. And when they're there, they have this really big idea. They, they say, come, right? Like, they're really excited about it. And in your ESV text, there's a little, little comma there. Uh, and so we might be tempted to read this in a nonchalant way, come. Let us do this thing. But that's not really how the text is using it. It's, a, it's an imperative that's being used as an interjection. Like, they're really excited about this, and it's meant to draw attention. They say, come, hey, come on, let's do this. Like, they're really excited. And what they're really excited to do is to build for themselves a city and a tower. They say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, in the ancient Near East, cities were not necessarily designed for living in. They were designed for public and religious purposes. And central to this city would be this tower, uh, what we would call a ziggurat, a Mesopotamian ziggurat. And if you don't know what a ziggurat is, you've seen one in a movie or in a picture at some point. It's essentially, you think of it as the massive, solid brick, like mountain-looking structure. Um, and and it, what it did was it served as a temple complex, right? And, this, this, and it, 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 you've seen it because they have these giant staircases from the base of this, this man-made mountain all the way to the top. And these, these, this mountain imagery was prominent in the ancient Near East. Um, they would make these artificial mountain structures, and they would conceive of them, and they would build them, and they would give them names like the gate of heaven or the bond between heaven and earth. The idea was that they would build this, and the gods would descend down upon this mountain structure to bless the people in various ways. 
And we get the idea of this, that this is what the people are doing, when it says that they're going to build this tower with its top into the heavens. The summit of their man-made mountain would extend into the place of the gods. Now, this mountain imagery wasn't just something they had invented. In the ancient Near East, it wasn't just a, a pagan invention. But rather, this mountain imagery reflected something real. It was based upon the way in which Yahweh, the creator, the maker, the one true God, related and met with and dwelled with his people. It was his meeting place with man. The Garden of Eden, for example, is described in the scriptures in Ezekiel as the holy mountain of God. It was the very place where man would dwell in God's presence. In the flood narrative, which really is a recreation story, Noah's ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat, and there he would build an altar to worship God. Of course, in due time, we know that covenants would travel to Mount Sinai, and there God would covenant with them as Moses would make the summit and meet with God face to face, as the scripture says. Jerusalem has come to be known as Mount Zion. It would be the place that God would dwell with his people in his holy temple. Even the temple and the tabernacle before it had this three-part structure, this outer court, this most holy place, and the holy of holies. And the design of this was actually meant to reflect this mountain imagery. And of course, for us, we know that we look forward. We look forward to what the author of Hebrews describes as the heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Mount Zion, where, where we will live with Christ forever. This mountain imagery is why the psalmist, for example, in, in Psalm 24, asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand there in his holy place? You see, mountains were about presence with Yahweh. It was about true worship. But these people, their goal was not true worship of Yahweh. Their motivation is actually, we read it in verse 4. It says that they would build this great mountain in order to make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And this idea of naming something in the scriptures carries the idea of having dominion over it. You think about, about God, he named Man, he named Adam. Why? Because he created him, and thus he had dominion over him. Adam named the animals because God had given Adam dominion over his creation. This building project that these people undergo is about establishing their independence. This was a rejection of God's authority over them. They sought to kill God and seize for themselves that which only belongs to him, a throne. 
You see, after this flood narrative, they had this opportunity. There was a new beginning, and there was this new future. And and the future that they envisioned was a future not with Yahweh on the throne, but a future with themselves upon the throne. We're told this by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14. He speaks of Babylon, and he alludes to this incident. And in verses 13 and 14, It says, you said in your heart to Babylon, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. You see, not only did they build and not want Yahweh in the picture, but they themselves wanted to build this artificial tower so that they would be their own God. This was a substitute. They wanted to substitute themselves for real presence with and worship of Yahweh. It was their rebellious attempt at securing and establishing security and significance through their own humanistic efforts. They would not receive a name from Yahweh. They would make one for themselves. God would not be the one who would give them their existence. They would establish it on their own. They would be the masters of their own destiny the masters of their own fame and glory, their own safety and security, their own immortality, and their own independence and permanence. And because they had no interest in Yahweh at all, they certainly weren't going to heed his command to fill the earth, to spread out across the earth. And so they built this city, as it says at the end of verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of of the whole earth. They were rejecting God's good command for them. And of course, this rejection demonstrated their pride and their rebellious hearts. And this really is a continued story that began in Genesis chapter 3. It began with Adam and Eve dwelling on that sacred mountain of the garden in the Holy of Holies, dwelling in the presence of God in Eden, and then rebelling against his good command, eating of the, the, that fruit that was forbidden for them. Why? So that they might be like God, knowing good from evil. And the result of that rebellion is tragic. It, it results in expulsion. They are expelled from Eden. They are expelled from the very presence of God. And the broad movement of these early chapters of Genesis is a movement of descent. It's a movement away from the presence of of God. It's a downward journey from the heights of the sacred mountain of Eden down into the plain of Shinar, from Eden to Babylon. It's a descent away from God. Perhaps we might summarize it like this. 
In the Tower of Babel story, we see the tragic end of the arrogance of the sinful human heart. We see the tragic end of the arrogance of the sinful human heart. And what is this end? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 10, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The arrogance of the sinful human heart cries out, there is no God. We have ourselves. We have no need for him. This is the reality behind their building project. And this reality behind their building project really is a timeless reality. And you think about this story and our own cultural moments, the ambition of, of self-reliance, human self-reliance. The drive for self-importance and fame. Seeking the good life by means of technology, confidence in a civil program as the way to attain our certainty and our security, the desire to control human destiny. These things sound a lot like our world. But you know what else they sound like? These things also sound a lot like the arrogance of my own sinful heart. My own sinful heart. I mean, how often are we driven by our self-centered ambitions? How often do we live as though we do not need God? How often do we seek glory and significance beyond what is given to us by our Creator? How often do we value the celebrity the well-known, the named, over the ordinary gifts sitting right beside us? How often do we seek comfort in technological advances and security in cultural endeavors? How often is our faith misplaced looking to polity as the assurance of our future? How often do we seek to control God to command his actions, his response, his will to bend to our own vision of my own future. And when he doesn't respond the way that I desire him to respond, how often do I think, ah, there must be no God at all? You see, we can read verses one through four and we can scoff, but, but if I'm honest with myself, I find myself making and laying brick after brick after brick after brick, building for ourselves a base from which we might storm the gates of heaven and take the throne that belongs only to God. This is the arrogance of the sinful human heart. Well, then the story turns in verse 5. This, the viewpoint changes. We actually get God's take on this building project. 
And it actually begins with a bit of satire. While the people are building this city and this great tower that will extend into the heights of the heavens, Yahweh, he has to come down to see their little Lego brick structure. See, man's greatest achievement is too puny to be seen by the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-presence creator. Now think about that, what the text is saying. And the text is not making a statement about God's nature. God remains omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, but it's making a statement about man's limited nature and his godless endeavors. He has to come down to see it. And the Lord knows that's because the people are united in this one language, that this city and this tower is only the beginning of their humanistic enterprise. If left to themselves, they would only continue to further refuse to live within their own God-given boundaries and creaturely limits. And so he matches the rally cry of man in direct response to the people's excited declaration, come, let us build. Verse seven, Yahweh says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. He matches their rally cry. They say, come, and Yahweh says, oh, I'm coming. (laughs) They say, let us build, let us make bricks and let us build, And, and Yahweh says, oh, I'm going to mix them up. And in the Hebrew, in fact, throughout this entire passage, there's lots of fancy wordplay that's happening. And here, this most fascinating, three Hebrew words, okay? Nilvana, navala, nevala. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, those all sounded exactly the same, that's the point, okay? The people say, nilvana, let us make. And Yahweh responds, navala, let us mix up which sounds a lot like the word nevela, which means the folly of the impious. See, Yahweh, he mixes up the foolish, ungodly building project of man. And he does so as an act of judgment. And he does what they refuse to do. As he, the text says, he dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. This is judgment for man's attempt at trying to unseat Yahweh from his throne. And if you think about this judgment, it's had grave consequences Significant consequences as we think of the death toll that has come as a result of the division and the warring of people and nations throughout human history. But this judgment is also gracious. God is gracious. Because you see, If left to themselves, they would successfully build a united secular city where there would be no place for God. And think about that end. 
a world where there is no place for God. The consequences, I mean, there's just no words. That would be beyond a dreadful thing. And he won't let them do it because God is a gracious God. I think the key to understanding the grace of this passage is actually the way that it is connected to the next section of Scripture. In the text, a new section begins beginning in chapter 11, verse 10. And it begins with these seemingly mild words, these are the generations of Shem. Shem. It's the same Hebrew word that we've read before when the people said, we shall make a name, a Shem for ourselves. And think about that. The people sought to make a name for themselves and Yahweh responds, no, 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 no. I am the one who makes a name for my people. And from the line of Shem, we get Terah, the father of Abram, the one that God would covenant with, making this promise in chapter 12, where he tells Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This godless people, it's dispersed over the face of the earth. And the question now at the end of the tower story is how is Yahweh going to reach them? And the answer is Abram who would later be given the name by God, Abraham, the father of multitude, God would call him out of exile in Ur for the sake of these scattered nations to bless them, to be gracious to them, to make them a people marked by his holy name. And what is this blessing that he promised? Well, I'm going to skip a lot of history here and just go straight to the New Testament, the very first verse of of the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1. It's the genealogy of Christ, and it really helps summarize, real simply, how we get from from Abraham to the blessings of the nations. And it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How is it that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham? They'd be blessed through Jesus. He is the one who would go to the cross to redeem us, to receive the judgment that our arrogance of the sin, our sinful hearts deserves so that we might live with God upon his holy mountain. You see, what mankind ultimately needs is not bigger and better cities to provide greater security and significance. Our cultural endeavors cannot accomplish what we ultimately need. The the, the sinful human heart simply won't allow it because it will leave no room. It will always try to cut God out of the picture. Our greatest need 
is redemption. What we need is to be rescued from our excessive arrogance. We need our sinful, rebellious hearts to be subdued by the goodness and grace of our Savior. We need peace with God because it's only in peace with him that we have the significance and the security that we ultimately long for. We need Jesus, the son of God, the son of Abraham, who gave his life for the likes of us as the savior of sinners. You see, when we try to remove God from our lives, when we try to make a name for ourselves, we end up losing everything. We set ourselves on a trajectory to live only in exile, separated from God, separated from the one who possesses life in himself. But when we lose ourselves, when we humble ourselves in dependence and trust in Jesus, then then we have this redemption that we need. And then we will know true security and true significance. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he writes, verses 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you hear that? God preached the gospel to Abraham with those words from Genesis, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Blessed because Jesus would redeem his people from all the nations of the earth. And he would give them his name. In our baptism, we are marked by the Trinitarian name of Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By faith, we wear his name as his people, as Christians, the people of God, children of the living God. And by faith, we look forward to the glory when Christ comes again, as it says in Revelation 22, We will see his face, and his name will be written on our foreheads. You see, that's the blessing promised Abraham, this redemption, that he would give us his name and that we would dwell in his city, New Jerusalem, heavenly Mount Zion. And in this heavenly city, there will be no artificial tower there. There will be no temple because Jesus himself will be the temple. We will dwell in his limitless, glorious presence. And we will dwell under his eternal blessing. 
It's the promise. It's the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Now, speaking of this eternal city, Revelation 22 speaks of this eternal city in this way. It says, and I saw no temple in the city. This is the heavenly Jerusalem coming down at the return of Christ. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing Unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why would we exchange this true, eternal city, this true, eternal life in God's blessed presence for an artificial, man-made existence here and now? Why would we make that exchange? Why would we follow the arrogance of our sinful human hearts when we could follow Jesus? <laughs> Jesus. The one whose dominion is, is good, his rule is righteous, it is true, it is just, it is life-giving to us. And his dominion is worthy of our praise, indeed worthy of us to give ourselves to. Dear children, let him give you his name, the children of the living God. Oh, that's what he gives us. And we see it right here at the table, don't we? We see all that is true and all that is good and all that is life-giving. And we realize what Christ has done. We see it pictured right here in this bread and this juice. And as we come to this table, we're humbled. The arrogance of our sinful hearts, it, by God's gracious spirit, it washes away. And we're humbled. And we look at these elements and, and, and they teach us to depend and to trust in Jesus as the one who, who has dominion, a dominion that is good. And it helps us to learn to wear his name, to live our lives in such a way that honors him as the one who's given us this redemption. And so we come to this table. We come to this table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What is it that we declare? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, our redemption. And in him, we wear the name that God gives to us, children of the living God. Please pray with me. Father, we come to your table to receive from you. We know our sinful hearts, and so we rest in the abundance of your goodness and your grace. We give you thanks for marking us as your children, calling us into your presence, and we look forward to the day in which we will share in that great marriage supper of the Lamb before the glory of the face of Jesus. And so would you set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that we would know that we indeed belong to you? Would you be present with us now by your Holy Spirit? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.